What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast with me, your movie monster boy, Aaron. This will be a slightly different episode, obviously. This is a mini-sode, which we don't do that often, but we have an awesome guest on today. We have John Brennan, who has been involved with all kinds of shit, from Troma to Joe Bob Briggs to music of his own. So, just so happened, like I mentioned on our last episode, Heather and I ended up going to the Joe Bob Jamboree in Memphis, Tennessee, where we had a blast, reached out to some people while we were there to kind of do some interviews and just chit chat. So uh, I've got John with us and John, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you kind of found your way into doing the crazy things that you're doing. All right. Thank you so much for having me. I guess I could start at the beginning. I was born in Brooklyn, New York. And uh, sometimes when I say that, people get very upset for some reason because they think that I'm lying. <laughs> no, I was actually born in Sheepshead Bay, New York. I lived there for seven years. I choked on a slice of Sicilian pizza at one point. Kind of <laughs> not that uh, not that exciting. Then I moved into uh, Long Island where I grew up, did my thing. That's where I started to fall in love with horror movies. I grew up at the perfect time. I mean, the 80s were the greatest time, in my opinion, to be a kid. You had the height of MTV, all the Headbangers Ball and Yo! MTV yeah. rap stuff, real videos. And then on the other end of it, you had this renaissance of horror where it was just franchise after franchise, slasher film after slasher film. Not just horror films. You also had teen comedies. It was just a great time to be a kid because I feel like that whole decade was just geared yeah. towards kids, you know? Yeah, genre was definitely king during the 80s for sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, we, we lived through... I mean, there was the universal horror was like in the 30s and stuff or the 40s and the 50s and the kids then, the monster kids. I feel like we were the monster kids the second coming because we had yeah. Freddy <laughs> instead of Frankenstein and we had Jason instead of the Wolfman. You know, it was like those were our universal monsters at the time. Yeah. So um, I, I kind of feel uh, a kinship to the monster kids, almost like we're the descendants of that. And then uh, after that, I graduated high school. I went to an all boys Catholic school, which uh, don't hold that against me. Oh, look, uh, my, my co-host Derek <laughs> definitely grew up in the Catholic boys school situation in uh, New Orleans. So, yeah, there you go. It's a strange situation and that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> then I, I went to film school for a few years at a place called Long Island University. And I went there because I had a choice. It was either go away and live in dorms and stuff. And I don't really like living like that with strangers and filth, even though I'm <laughs> sort of a filthy person myself. I, I just did the dorm life didn't sort of appeal to me at that time. So I stayed at home and my parents gave me a car as Hell a yeah. gift as like graduating high school. So shit, I had my own car. I was like ready to go to, high, to college. It was awesome. At that time, it wasn't the digital revolution yet. I actually went to yeah. film school when people were still cutting on flatbeds and stuff. So I, the first two yep. years I was there, we just shot on film. Yeah, I caught the tail end of that when I was in film school during the mid-aughts. Definitely in that transition of we had a whole year of cutting everything on film, doing it all manually, and then kind of by the end of that span, digital was kind of getting in, and my last project was done on digital. So yeah, I was at the very, very end of that. So I know a little bit of the pain that you went through. Yeah, I, I actually kind of liked it. I just, I don't know how these beautifully edited movies were done on flatbeds and moviolas and stuff like that because... Oh yeah, it's wild. They, they're so precise in the way that they cut some of these things and, you know, look at the editing nowadays. It's like kind of trash and people have all the tools at their fingertips. So there's something to be said about being meticulous with that film and there, there was probably something more inspiring about working with the actual film. I don't know. There's something yeah. to be said for that. 
and let me just backtrack real quick. It's not like my parents gave me a goddamn Ferrari or something. They gave me a five-year-old <laughs> Nissan Quest. Green. <laughs> I was about to say Nissan Stanza. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, yeah, Quest, even better. A Quest. So it wasn't like I was uh, tearing up the town and getting laid because I had a car. It was uh, for very much practical purposes. But it was yeah. a party van, so that was cool. And then after college, I moved to L.A. I went there with the mindset that I was going to be a professional screenwriter. And while I did write about 14 screenplays while I lived in LA for nine or so years, almost 10. Uh, I never sold anything. So I came back from LA. I, I kind of treated LA as the sequel to my college years and I partied a lot and uh, yeah. I, I wouldn't exchange it for the world. I had a great apartment 42 feet from the Sunset Strip. It was great. I, I, I loved LA, but I did come back somewhat defeated because I didn't have the career that I set out to get. So when I came back to New York, I was in my early 30s, maybe 31, and I decided to do what I didn't do in LA, which was give myself away for free as an intern or a, you know, a volunteer to all these places. So I worked on a public access TV show. I paid to play at places like the Upright Citizens Brigade and the Pit to do sketch comedy classes just to meet people. Then the final thing that I volunteered for was trauma. I saw Uncle Lloyd Kaufman on Twitter. Uh, It was one of the first weeks that I was on Twitter. He put out this tweet saying, we're looking for editing volunteers at trauma. And I realized it was only 20, 25 minutes from my house. Yeah. uh, Trauma Entertainment. So I said, you know what? I'm going to see what happens. So I sent a couple of these music videos and stuff that I had edited and the people there at the time liked it. So they just said, yeah, you could edit some stuff for us. And I ended up doing a couple of make your own damn movie lessons for Uncle Lloydy. Yeah, I've seen a few of those. The first one I ever did. I love it. It's called Jason and the Art Go Nuts. It was great. It was Lloyd got asked to go to this uh, really like sort of dilapidated art space during CMJ, which is like sort of a citywide music festival. And uh, they build it as like, you know, it's like a meet and greet. But when he got there, it was just a couple of dozen art kids, you know, hanging out and they projected class at Newcomb High on a bed sheet. Hell yeah. Yeah. And and let the computer speakers have the sound. It wasn't a professional screening at all. But to Uncle Lloyd's credit, (laughs) he remained there. He shot some footage and we got this really funny piece out of it. So he liked my work on that. And then he just started giving me more. And also Matt Mangerides, who is the executive producer of The Last Drive-In, he was at Troma at that time. Gotcha. So he also started, yeah, he started giving me editing stuff. And uh, one of the things that he gave me, which was one of the first big projects I ever did, was a thing called Horror Boobs, yes. which is a <laughs> uh, a compilation of breast videos from the Troma library. And I, I collaborated uh, somewhat with the guy who invented Horror Boobs, Matt Desiderio. He's like a historian for shot on video and VHS and all that sort of stuff. So that was really cool. And that was the first feature length project I ever worked on. And then from there, like I I was there a couple of years and Lloyd's assistant uh, was leaving. And Lloyd called me up. He knew that I was a hard worker and I did some cool stuff for the company. So he said, why don't you be my assistant? And besides just doing the mundane office tasks, it'll be a great collaboration. Yeah. How is it working with Uncle Lloyd specifically? I've heard nothing but good stuff about him, but I know he also takes his work very seriously, you know? So how was that? Lloyd is an an artist through and through. I mean, the guy's a born artist and um, sometimes his his methods are uh, not obvious as to what he's doing at the time, but yeah. later it's always for the art. Sometimes he feels that chaos breeds the best art. So, you know, sometimes it's a little trying working with Lloyd because you're not sure of his end game. But overall, the guy is a, an absolute genius. I know so much. I mean, look, I went to film school, like I said, but my real film school was trauma. And working with Lloyd Kaufman and Michael Hurst, yeah. just learning the in, the real ins and outs of it. Because in college, they don't teach you the business 
part of it, or they don't teach you the uh, get it done by hook or by crook. It's all sort of yeah. like a it's a magical. It's not like practical almost. Sometimes it's practical, but trauma was the most practical because no matter what, you had to get it done. You know, and yep. and you only have fifty bucks to get it done. So how do you make that happen? You know, that sort of thing. Yeah, definitely agree. The business side of filmmaking is not at all something that's taught at film school. And not should really. Be. Absolutely. You know, every, everybody jokes about how like they should teach basic finance in high school. Well, they do teach basic finance in film school too. It's the same difference. Oh, uh, absolutely. Maybe some of the higher end film schools have those sort of classes, but the one yeah. that I went to it was mostly theory and then hands-on learning a camera, learning the grip equipment, so, stuff like that. Yeah. And there's something to be said too about, you know, it, it's not something that can be taught, but that discipline of getting up at 5 a.m. and get going and you go all day long and you might take a lunch break and you definitely yeah. like maybe get your cigarette breaks in, but then you're there until midnight and then you maybe go home and get a few hours sleep. Um, and then yeah, you get up and, and do, do it, the it next all day. over again. Yep. So like yes. there's something about that discipline, um, especially when you're doing it for trauma where it's all very, like you said, just hand to mouth and very fast that you have to get that discipline down. But there's something to be said about learning that discipline and then being able to apply that to literally any other production that you go on. In some ways, it's like, oh, well. I'm not getting covered in fake shit today. And, uh, you know, it's definitely not as hot in here because they have air conditioning. It's definitely one of those things where it's a trial by fire, but it's a great way to learn and get that discipline down for sure. Absolutely. I would say anybody who's within like a 25 mile, 30 mile radius of trauma, hit them up and try to volunteer because you'll learn, even if you're just working in the office there for one or two days a week, you'll learn something. Look, whether or not you like their movies, the fact of the matter is trauma has been around I think next year is their 50th year or yeah. 2024 50 years that's 50 years of knowledge good and bad so if you yep. go there and you see how they make the donuts you learn something and, and it's a valuable lesson so I would recommend that to everybody yeah absolutely they've stuck around longer than a lot of studios have so cool well you've appeared as Toxie as Sergeant <laughs> Kabuki Man as Dolphin Man etc on several other projects and several events so what was it like stepping into those characters i have heard hot and stinky are the two things that i hear from most people that play those characters so what was your uh experience like i could tell you a hundred stories no joke not, not i'm not even exaggerating a hundred different stories like you said i played the toxic avenger and not only did i do it in like official trauma releases or like on comic book men on amc i was the toxic avenger on that episode when lloyd went there <laughs> but i was also the toxic avenger at stuff like conventions or one time i volunteered to be the toxic avenger when the museum of modern art was playing tromeo and juliet Hell and yeah. i said <laughs> There's no way I'm not playing the Toxic Avenger at yeah. the Museum of Modern Art, you know? <laughs> so so things like that. And yes, so there's different Toxic event just specifically for Toxic Avenger, there's dis different masks that they have. There's one mask that I loved, which is sort of like a form-fitting, I guess it was silicone mask that sort of becomes a second skin. Yeah. That mask was amazing. Even though it was like sort of sweaty, it was on you and you felt like it was your face. Yeah. On the other hand, there were other masks that were a little cheaper made that were just better for conventions and stuff, just for the fast uh, travel. Those were a little more uncomfortable because you're in it, you can't see as well, harder to breathe, you know, that sort of thing. And and one thing that I know is that uh, Lloyd 
Lloyd doesn't necessarily like people taking off the toxic Avenger mask in front of the fans. Yeah, you can't break that illusion. You can't break the illusion. It's it's Disney, you know, it's all that stuff. So <laughs> you have to go to a private area and take the mask off. Yeah, unless you're like in an emergency, obviously he's not going to let you choke to death. But uh, yeah. it's like, all right, go in the corner, take it off and then come back. Um, So there was that toxic Avenger. I mean, I played him in a VR movie that Lloyd and I co-directed called The Heart of Fartness. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> and then Dolphin Man, we, I did like two or three shorts. Uh, I did play Kabuki Man with an actual mask, but I never got in the, the real Kabuki Man makeup. That was always usually Doug Sackman. Gotcha. But I did co-direct and co-edit and write all the episodes of Kabuki Man's Cocktail Corner, which is a web series that we did while I was there. Yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. I saw that you have worked with the Last Podcast Network group on a couple of different projects. Did you know those guys before through like the whole New York crowd or did you meet them through Troma specifically? No. So I'll, I brought those guys to Troma. So I'll tell you, like I mentioned yeah. earlier, how I sort of paid to play in order to meet people at things like the Upright Citizens Brigade in New York, the People's Improv Theater. Yeah. yeah gotcha. The Magnet Theater. So I went there specifically to meet people. And, you know, some of the classes were like 300 bucks a pop, but I had saved a little money working in LA. I was a dispatcher. Okay. So this is the, the real story. So the Upright Citizens Brigade was all Saturday Night Live worship. I mean, that was all yeah. that anybody talked about. And that's great and everything. And that's cool. If you could get on SNL, that would be amazing. I would love to be on SNL, but it's just not where my trajectory was. I was a little more uh, rough around the edges, so to speak. I like to in introduce blood and profanity and absurdisms and gore, all the things that SNL doesn't want on their show. So yeah. in turn, a lot of the times in classes at the Upright Citizens Brigade, I would get tarnished because of the things I was writing. It wasn't their speed. Uh, and I got this one uh, note that was, you know, there's a rule in sketch comedy that if you introduce group sex, that's just as bad as bringing Hitler out on stage. And I said, <laughs> wait a second, you just equated the man who caused the Holocaust to fucking orgies? Yeah. I think you need therapy, not comedy school. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah, it's it was bad. So I went to the People's Improv Theater and immediately this guy, Chris Aurelio, great, great guy, great teacher, yeah. very talented. He said, the stuff that you write, Murder Fist is right up your alley. You yep. got to go see Murder Fist. That's on what I figured. Okay. Yeah. You, so you know Murder. Fist, huh? <laughs> yes, I'm a murder fist. Good. So he was like, go on a 11, 11 30 in the pit underground. These are the guys for you. So I, I went alone one Saturday. I was just like, fuck. So I went to the show. And I'm sitting there and these guys blew my mind. Murder Fist and specifically Henry Zabrowski because he did this sketch burned into my mind forever. One where he was a meth head <laughs> and he got fully naked on stage. Yeah. I was jumping around <laughs> and, and it just like gets worse from there. <laughs> it's so fucking God. funny. So I said in my mind, I go, these are the best motherfuckers on the New York comedy stage right now. I will meet them. And I did. I met Holden McNeely. And yeah. because of that, I got to meet Henry Zabrowski, Jackie Zabrowski, Ed Larson, the whole crew, Amber Nelson, everybody was so cool. So then when I started working at Troma about six months later, I would invite them in to do little stuff. I mean, yeah. Ben Kissel is the voice of the Toxic Avenger in the Christmas cartoon, uh, Very Troma Christmas. He's the voice. <laughs> Did not know that. Yeah. We also endorsed him when he ran for Brooklyn Borough president. Yeah. There's an episode of Kabuki Man's Cocktail Corner where we go to the zombie crawl and we endorse Ben. You know, little things. Henry's in Return yeah. to Nukem High Volume 2. Marcus Parks is in an episode of Kabuki Man's Cocktail Corner. The Cowmen, his band, they played Troma Dance. So I got to work with these guys who I respected only because I had the master plan of saying, I want to meet these awesome comedians because I feel yeah. like this is the future of comedy. And they were. They absolutely 
completely blew up. And I'm not saying that I made that happen. But what I'm saying is I recognized their talent and I knew that that was more my speed than say, I don't know, the fucking whatever the hell was happening at the Upright Citizens Brigade. Well, it's just like any other kind of clique. I mean, you eventually find your people and you tend to stick together. And even if everybody's kind of doing their own different thing, like if you all jive together, you work together often. That's just how that works. So hell yeah. Well, yeah, Derek and I are big fans of that entire group, all their different projects. And we've been listening to them for years. So a lot lot of why we ended up pulling the trigger on doing our own show is because we were like, "Eh, fuck it, we can do this too. Great. So to shift gears a little bit, tell me how you got into music. What were your influences? I've listened to some of your stuff specifically, you know, be it covers or your original stuff. You definitely were at the Jamboree providing music, (laughs) specifically the, you know, eight more days to Halloween. (laughs) (laughs) Every time you came on, my wife and I were fucking dying. Oh my God, that was so fun. Yeah, tell me a little bit about your music. So I have to credit my mother and my father for starting me off early as a fan of music. I mean, there's a picture of me. I can't be much more than two. It's Christmas and I have a little Fisher Price thing that I just opened for 45s. And I look so happy. I'm like, yeah. (laughs) So um, they gave me all these 45s and I would play music all the time. I remember specifically one of the first ones I ever got was Sir Duke by Stevie Wonder. And I would play that song over and over and over and over and over again. The thing about my parents is that they weren't really uh, closed off as far as genre. They listened to everything. I mean, everything. I mean, one of the first times I ever heard Beautiful People by Marilyn Manson was my father's like, did you hear this song yet? It's awesome. (laughs) And I'm like, I'm the teenager and you know this song before me? What the hell is going on? So just little things like that. My father has a great taste. My mother has great taste. So um, throughout the years, I always wanted to play guitar because, you know, when I was in fifth, sixth grade, it was the heyday of metal. Yeah. So uh, I finally convinced them to give me some guitar lessons, but unfortunately I got a bad grade and the guitar lessons were taken away from me. But (laughs) flash forward to high school, I got an acoustic guitar and a book of Beatles songs with the chords in them, not a tab, but you could see like the actual chords. So I learned open chords and originally in sixth grade, I learned bar chords. So I took that and I just started writing my own songs. And one of the first songs I ever wrote on that guitar was a song called Barbecue Maniac, which was inspired (laughs) by the music video for Ain't Nothing But a G Thang. There's a guy at a barbecue and they're like all playing volleyball on a beach and the guy at the barbecue turns around and he's flipping burgers, but he's got a gun in his waistband. Oh, shit. Yeah, okay, this is coming back to me. Yeah, I was like, who the fuck is that guy? So I wrote a song about him and I named him. His name is Walker Jones and he's the barbecue maniac. I'm Walker Jones. I'm the real only me. If anyone else tries, I'll put him in their teeth. Hey, yo, Griffin, what was that crash? If anything broke, I'm about to cap in your ass. When I'm at the grill, I get mad prompt. Uh-oh, look out. Here come the pork chops. Shit's got five, some shrimp. So I'm going to get a permanent lamp at my barbecue. At my barbecue. At my barbecue. At my barbecue. Oh, yeah. After that, I just I was off to the races writing songs about every goddamn thing uh, known to man. Hell yeah. Well, um, tell me a little bit about how you got involved with The Last Drive-In. I'm assuming you got in with Shudder since you already had that connection through Troma. So was it that avenue in or were you already a fan of Joe Bob's? Like, how did you get hooked up with that group? Well, I was a fan of Joe Bob back in the day. I mean, I wouldn't watch every Saturday night, but I did watch him often and I loved his shtick. I also uh, had seen him years before on the movie channel when me and my cousins had sleepovers and I didn't have yeah. cable, but they did. And we would just stay up late and watch these crazy movies with Joe Bob Briggs. So he was in my mind and I knew who he was, absolutely. The reason I got the gig with Joe Bob was because through Troma, 
I had met Matt Mangiarides, who I've mentioned, and Justin Martell, who went on later to become the executive producers of The Last Drive-In. So uh, when it came time for The Last Drive-In to gear up, they hit me up and they asked if I wanted to work on it. I said, absolutely. So they made me like a production manager, production coordinator type thing. But they also said, we know you make music. We're looking for a theme song. Why don't you submit a demo? See what happens. So uh, I was uh, completely stoked. I said, absolutely. So I went home and I wrote a song with the vision in my mind that there was a graveyard next to a drive-in. And in the graveyard were all these like Muppet monsters, like werewolves, (laughs) zombies. And they were all singing and celebrating that Joe Bob was coming back to town and going to the drive-in. Obviously, we didn't have the budget to make that opening happen, but the song, (laughs) it had that feel. uh, So it was approved about 24 hours later Austin Jennings the director called me up and he said if you add some stuff like a slide guitar and organ and uh, things like that that's going to be our theme song so that was it it was everything else is history after that Tell me a little bit about how the Jamboree came together, the whole entire thing from getting all the Halloween 3 people together and Darcy being such a passionate fan of that movie to doing the double feature. Like, how did that whole thing come together? So we did the Jamboree last year at the Mahoning Drive-In and it was awesome. I yeah. Mean, the only problem there pretty much was that there was a huge monsoon on a Friday and uh, it was a lot of mud and stuff. But once we got over that hurdle, the rest of the party was amazing. And, you know, we, had all, we only had a couple of guests that time Linnea Quigley Amelia Kincaid from uh, Night of the Demons and then some bands and stuff like that it was a great time fast forward you know a little while a few months later and they start talking about Jamboree in Memphis and so I got convinced pretty early on that is this was a worthwhile cause I mean (laughs) Memphis is a music town and I love to do music so of course I want to play so many people contributed to the success of this thing I mean not just me but Austin Jennings you know the director of the show Matt Mangiarides, who did a lot of logistics. You got Darcy, who added so much. Joe Bob himself, of course. And then on top of that, there was a company who did the convention portion. Like we were sort of in charge of the drive-in portion with the live stage, the movies, all that kind of stuff. And then there was a company, Humble Entertainment, who sort of handled the convention at the Hilton, which was, you know, where you get all your celebrities. You get Fred Williamson, PJ Souls, uh, Felissa Rose, Dave Sheridan, and the list goes on and on and on. So they kind of coordinated that part of it. And it's a pretty interesting dichotomy because uh, uh, Lloyd, not Lloyd, (laughs) Joe Bob Briggs, (laughs) it's his brainchild. You know, he wants this thing to sort of become like the gathering of the mutants kind of. I I know that he doesn't necessarily want it to be Juggalo. I I don't know if he wants it to be Juggalo. They don't want to be Juggalo themed, yes. Juggalo themed, but you know, (laughs) in spirit, I mean, it would be amazing to do a mashup of uh, mutants and Juggalos. I think it would be a a harmonious ceremony. So that's the thing is that uh, Lloyd, I keep saying 
lawyer. Joe Bob, it's his brainchild. He wants this to become like a, a sort of a, a Woodstock meets South by Southwest for fans of The Last Drive-In and beyond. Uh, while Mahoning was the seed, now we've seen the little sapling growing out of the you know the dirt and it, what this thing could actually be moving forward. It could only get bigger and bigger. And I mean, all the celebrities were amazing. We had great musical guests, Tim Capello, Jonah Ray did some songs. I mean, huh. so hopefully this thing keeps growing. Awesome. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to it, especially since my wife and I are moving to D.C. soon. Um, we will be much closer to Philly, Pittsburgh, New York, just all these other places around. So there's just a much bigger concentration of venues and places. So I'm, I'm definitely hoping that y'all would be coming nearby sometime soon. Sure. You never know. I mean, uh, the one thing I do know is that Joe Bob had said his early, early plans, this was almost even before the Mahoning, is that he was thinking the master plan was East Coast, then then do a middle of the country, West Coast, and then Texas. So hopefully yeah. we can hit the next two in the next years and then start to go all over the place. Hell yeah. Let's kind of just shift into like horror in general, movies, books, music. Just, you know, you said from an early age, you've always been into horror. Like what was your gateway thing that got you into the genre as a whole? I'll say there's two. One was definitely Thriller by Michael Jackson. But Thriller by Michael Jackson, I was so frightened of it, I couldn't even watch it. I, could, I couldn't even bring <laughs> myself to watch the video. <laughs> I was young, but I loved the song. And then yeah. slowly I allowed myself to see bits and pieces of the video. And, and then finally I was able to watch the whole thing. And I was like, oh, it's not that bad, you know, whatever. So that sort of helped me grow a little bit into the horror world. But the, the one that I got over my fear fully was Friday the 13th Part 4 with Corey Feldman. Now, Corey Hell Feldman, yeah. I had loved him in The Goonies, in other great movies, probably Stand By Me. And, I, you know, I was really scared of Freddy and Jason and Michael Myers when I was a kid. But when I saw that Corey Feldman was in, I was like, it can't be that scary because he's, he's yeah. a Goonie, you know? Yeah. If this kid's taking him on, I could watch this movie, yeah. Yeah, if a Goonie's taking on Jason, I mean, I could I could go on the long on a scary ride as long as the Goonie wins. And he does. The Goonie <laughs> pretty much wins so that was my first that wasn't so bad and it was actually really fun and cool to watch with my friends so then i was off to the races i just uh started watching everything the one that brought me back to regress a little bit was the exorcist that fucked me up for a good <laughs> i'm still fucked up but i can't turn the lights off and think of that movie uh, i'll shit my pants that's interesting too because everybody's got their own personal fears and that kind of thing and so it's always interesting talking to people and seeing like what was the thing that kind of fucked you up yeah some people it's super natural like in your case you know the exorcist some people like me it's more like the texas chainsaw kind of gritty like raw like this shit could be happening down the road from you kind of stuff see i never thought of that because uh I, I i you know i grew up in like sort of a suburb and it was there was no the ch chainsaw massacres but the devil could come through your goddamn bed sheets and rip <laughs> you to hell <laughs> That's the Catholic guilt talking. <laughs> Hell yeah. Cool. What is a recent-ish horror movie that you enjoyed? It doesn't have to be like a new movie. I'm just saying it's like something you've watched recently, the horror movie that you enjoyed and would like to recommend to our audience. Well, I mean, I don't want to talk. Uh, I'm just going to do it. Forget it. So uh, my girlfriend had <laughs> not seen Get Out or Us. Hell so yeah. we recently did a double feature. And I think Get Out is a masterpiece. It's, a, it's like so well done. And this was the second time 
time I ever saw it. So I saw all the clues as it was like, oh, yeah. the mystery is unfolding. And then it's totally different when you watch it, knowing where it's going. Yeah. Yeah. So I fucking loved it. Unfortunately, us, I think, is pretty bad. I, I don't understand <laughs> it. I don't I don't get the metaphor. I don't even get the logic in a lot of it. It's incredibly divisive. That's what I've discovered because I fall on the side of I pretty mostly like it. There's parts it I love. totally insane. Yeah. It's weird going from seeing fucking Tim Heidecker <laughs> being a fucking weirdo to just abject absolute horror with scissors and shit. Yeah. So it's totally wild. And then, yeah, just the entire insane premise. It's one of those where the ambition maybe kind of shoots a little bit higher and doesn't quite get there. Yeah. But the main thing I appreciate, I guess, at least, and since you watched both back to back, you can yeah. attest to this, the leaps and bounds in his filmmaking abilities from that first movie to that second movie. Whether or not you like the second movie, like oh. story wise and everything else, there is such a huge jump in Absolutely. like his abilities in that second movie. And I'm really excited to see Nope. For that same reason. Yeah. Oh, I can't wait for Nope. I, even yeah. though I don't like Us, I'm, I'm going to see Nope probably this week. But yeah, the thing about Us is that to me, it was a failure, not in the directing or the way it looks or the acting or anything. It was just that he didn't reach the heights of Get Out script, you know? Yeah. So I hope that with Nope, whatever he's going to throw at us this time, that it's just the, uh, it's closer to Get Out, you know? So that yeah. was recent. That was just because I watched that yesterday. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't want people to think I'm a racist disparaging <laughs> Jordan. Peel. No, like I said, Us is incredibly divisive. Yeah. People that I know that love Get Out aren't big on Us. It's just a completely yeah. divisive movie because it, it's not what people were expecting. It is kind of all over the map tonally. The plot is kind of insane nuts and like you said the metaphor is it's interesting and that's one that i'm excited to cover on our show eventually because it's oh, gonna be an interesting conversation yeah oh that'll be great i mean look it's hard to say like you know because you know how hard it is to make even a bad movie yeah so it, it's just like everybody goes into any movie with the best intentions and sometimes certain things just don't go your way the rain comes the acting yeah. uh, actors aren't scheduled and they can't make it all that shit that, from the indie to the hollywood yeah I always remember the Pat Oswalt bit where he's talking about deathbed, the bed that eats people. Yeah. And just how every day a dude fucking woke up, got his <laughs> shoes on and went to set and spent his years of carpentry experience building deathbed, the bed that eats people, <laughs> made that fucking movie and threw his shoulder out and his son hated him because he couldn't play catch with him. And, and then at the end of the day, like he made that movie. So yeah, there's something about the dedication it takes to even make a bad movie, like you said. Absolutely. Like just want to mention one other thing i watched recently unfortunately due to the passing of james khan me and my girlfriend yeah. went back and watched i think it's his first movie lady in a cage black and white that is one i have not seen Interesting. oh it's really cool it's like a really you could tell it's like a low budget movie but the directing's great the story's great there's twists james khan becomes really uh really menacing and interesting and it slowly somewhat becomes kind of a psycho bitty huh. in a way so interesting yeah if you're interested in like james khan's early work and to honor him because he just uh, went, yeah, Lady in a Cage. Interesting. Yeah, I'll have to check that one out. Whose work are you enjoying right now? Another musician, actor, director, like who is somebody whose stuff that you're just really digging right now that you want to throw out there for other people to check out? Well, you know, I, I always sort of name drop these guys because they pretty much are my favorite band of all time. But I got this book from my cousin and it's uh, I don't have the cover with me. It's in the other room, but it's 33 and a third. And, and that's like the series of books. Yeah. And this one is about Ween's chocolate and cheese. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. Tea of lasagna, 
past couple of days and now i'm like i'm totally jumping back into all the ween music so ween for anybody <laughs> out there that doesn't know who they are these guys are some of my biggest inspiration because they're like genre hoppers they've done everything from the lowest lo-fi bedroom recording to the highest hi-fi like beautiful sounding crisp studio recordings they've done everything from do a full country record with real nashville studio musicians yep. to then getting in the <laughs> in the studio with their own band and cranking out these psychedelic masterpieces so ween man i I've been getting really into weed lately again. Yeah, Derek and I both love Wayne. We saw them at Hangout Fest in Gulf Shores, Alabama a decade ago. And the show was great. The main thing I remember was there were a group of really high-end expensive boats and yachts that were all parked right by the beach and they had the beach roped off. Yeah. And uh, I just remember Dean just being like, hey, don't you guys out there enjoying the free show? <laughs> Fuck you! And just gave him the middle figure. It was great. Hell yeah! I love that shit. For my money, I've seen them probably 20 something times live. They're some of the greatest rock and roll, probably the greatest touring rock and roll band out there right now, if not one of, you know, they're just put on the greatest show. Hell yeah. Cool. Well, uh, that's basically it. I uh, just oh. wanted to kind of like do a short get to know you. So that was just like an appetizer. We need to oh, do yeah. the main course sometime. All right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Where can people find you and your various projects? And do you have anything upcoming that you'd like to plug? Sure. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm at Bad Techno on most social media platforms. Twitter and Instagram are the main ones I use. And then uh, www.badtechno.com. That's a little older, but you can find portals to all my work there. In Twitter and Instagram, there's a link tree that has links to all my stuff. So you can find anything there. Like we're doing a repressing of the last driving soundtrack on vinyl and stuff like that. So anything that I'm into there, you can find on that link tree. We just got renewed for a season five for the last drive-in. So Hell yeah. we're doing it again. So we're going to do some specials leading up to another full season, which is really cool. And then for personal stuff, tangentially related to the last drive-in, me and my band, The Big Feet, Joe Shack, Levi White, and Jimmy Adamson, who you saw live at the Jamboree, we're going to do a record called The Last Drive-Through or The Drive-Through Will Never Die. And it's going to be a lot of songs about <laughs> food and heavy metal and cars. Oh, yeah. yeah, so it's going to be a lot of fun. Awesome. That should be coming out at the end of the year, probably Black Friday, Christmas time. Hell yeah, I'm going to keep an eye out for that. Cool. Well, yeah, that is it. Again, thank you so much for coming on. Definitely appreciate taking time out of your day and uh, chit-chatting with me. So yeah, that is it for this episode, everybody. Go back to what you were doing. We'll chat later. Thanks, Aaron. Yeah, yeah.